This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. This week's episode is our year in review for 2018. We're going to take a look back at the stories that defined media this year. And as we tried to make that list, we realized that an awful lot of the news stories for 2018 were the very same ones we talked about a year ago in our 2017 wrap. Especially on the regulatory side of things. Like like last year, we talked about Sinclair Tribune. Yes, well, at least we have some resolution on that one. But otherwise, a lot of the stories that were in the news in 2018 uh, have not only not been resolved, but have continued on and perhaps will be stories for a 2019 edition. Yes. So let's start out on the regulatory side with Sinclair Tribune. Roughly in the category of things that the FCC has done. I mean, the FCC has been busy this year, arguably less so than than last year. But in what we would not have predicted at this time last year, the what looked like a fairly likely merger of Sinclair and Tribune was ultimately defeated. Tell us a bit more about how that happened. Well, I think it was a series of things. One, there was a popular concern about the scale of the merger and that that this would uh, require increasing the regulation on how many broadcast stations a single entity could own. Uh, The fact that Sinclair also was in the news at the end of last year for this practice of uh, forcing stations to run certain stories and uh, the fact that there was a clear political ideology to those stories also didn't really curry it a lot of of good attention. And I think that, you know, it increased the scrutiny. A lot of times, you know, media stories, ownership stories, they're not that interesting. Um, But this one did manage to catch the the eye of, of the population. And I think what also happened then as it got more pressure and politicized, that the FCC did indeed take a closer look. And, and in doing so, identified that there was some concern about the truth of some of the things that Sinclair was claiming. And they came to the realization that in the past, uh, Sinclair when they had said that they were spinning off different stations, that in fact they were often sort of just shell companies and they were still being controlled more or less by the group. Generally just this environment of a company who was really being questioned in terms of, of what they were doing. And at that point then it got thrown to a administrative law judge and sort of at that point the writing was on the wall and it just kind of fell apart. Which would have been shocking to us. A year ago at this moment. No, I I think very much so. We didn't see that one coming at all. Another one that I didn't completely see coming um, is the fact that the AT&T Time Warner merger is still not final. Um, Indeed, AT&T is very much acting as though it is. And we have Warner Media as the separate company that's being controlled by effectively an AT&T executive. Yes, And, and, and indeed at this point the... The likelihood, I think, of, of it being overturned is is low. Um, at a legal level, the review must find that there was a major error made by the judge. So yeah. the fact simply that the government probably didn't bring the best case that they could have, that, that that's neither here nor there. We can't uh, now bring a better case now that right. we've realized that this deal was always about HBO. And, and that's not, unfortunately, the case that uh, the Justice Department brought. So... So we can continue to watch, and I think this is a merger that's not off, let's say, to a good start in in many ways. Well, there were a couple of really 
bad news stories for AT&T right off the top of this. First with the story about um, the new executive, John Stanky, going in and giving a town hall with HBO employees where he talked about increasing the output at HBO. And that really upset a lot of HBO employees because what a part of what they think makes them special is their limit on content. And there was also the closing of the service Filmstruck, although something tells me a lot of those films will get looped in to what is going to be a Warner Media portal. Right. And so, you know, I think this is one of those classic situations where just because a merger makes good sense on paper, the idea that AT&T and its service providing business is actually a really different business than creating intellectual property. And really this big question about can the management styles merge? Can HBO stay HBO if you're managing it in the way that AT&T has managed its divisions? And I think the other thing that at this point uh, merger watchers are, are noting, the, the plan that has been announced, and, and mind you, nothing matters until anything actually comes to market, but right. the, the plan for the, the three different Warner Media portals, um, you know, I think, has uniformly been panned by every analyst as sort of, well, just frankly, dumb. Um, and, and, well, and what is that strategy? The idea is, is pretty much a version, a, a portal that is very similar to what are the Warner Media properties that are already on Hulu, mm. something that looks a lot like HBO, but perhaps loses that cachet of being HBO because it's throwing in other Warner properties. Right. Um, and, and then, then I'm, I'm actually forgetting what the third, there were third, sort of three tiers of um, possible service, and, and none of it was really innovative or um, clearly differentiating itself from anything that's already in the market. It's just, here's the Warner Brothers content. It's similar to the way that CBS All Access is, here's the CBS content. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the difference there is that CBS is still a pretty pure television play. It, it, it's right. not like, here are also uh, films that we own. Warner, in terms of its, its library, is a, is a blending of those two. And so, to a degree, you have HBO now in the market, it does well. It has the HBO series and not just Warner properties in terms of, of the new theatrical releases. And I think right. that adds to its value. And so certainly we are trending toward an environment of, of vertical integration among studios and these portal properties. But we really don't know that that's going to be a strategy that will work. And let's talk about another major media merger, Disney Fox. All right, this one's happening. Yes, this one's going through. All right. And so this, you know, it's a very different merger. I think last year we were overwhelmed by merger news, and there was this tendency to conflate them all. But uh, the merging of the two studios, you know, why is it happening? Uh, It is happening because of a desire on the content side to have the kind of scale that gives you some leverage when you're dealing with these distribution services that are increasingly becoming in a position to call shots. That's the idea. It will give Disney Library, which is already pretty big, additional scale to help it negotiate with whether it's internet service providers um, or the likes of Netflix, although it, it seems pretty likely that the Disney content is going to be available now distinctly through a Disney service. And especially as Disney pulls back some of their content from Netflix and other services. But we'll get back to more of that in a second. Yeah. I mean, the big thing that Disney is going to be doing is they're going to be releasing a portal, Disney Plus, mm-hmm. coming at the end of 2019. We'll get into this a little bit more in a bit, but Disney's portal and the need to get content for that is the reason for this deal. 
And probably the biggest news out of last year uh, was the decision to eliminate what had been the open internet or net neutrality policies uh, by the FCC. And you know, here you know there there have been a number of pieces in the in the last few weeks saying, "Hey, look, the sky didn't fall. Everybody's worried for nothing." I don't think that's quite the takeaway yet. I think, for one. Uh, there are a lot of challenges still pending. So this remains, I would argue, an unresolved issue, whether it's the various state governments that are trying to create their own regulations, which has then introduced uncertainty about whether or not states can create different rules. Uh, and then the the other piece is the number of lawsuits, frankly, that are just are, are still pending. It's all, They've all been rolled together, right. um, but we have no resolution there. And it probably won't be resolved until we get a resolution from Congress itself. Well, that, that would be one way, that would be the, the expedient way to solve all of this or, you know, the pending combined court case or a, some kind of decision about whether or not uh, the states can create their own laws. And in, because depending on what the answers to those are, this ends up looking very different. Now, I think for the ISPs, they're basically laying low for the most part, although notably a number of them, um, you know, raised rates and did things like that at the beginning of the year. But it really is difficult to implement a state-by-state strategy uh, in terms of internet service providers where, yes, their customers can perhaps be organized state-by-state, but really what net neutrality allows is for the internet service providers to be going to the companies and services that use the internet and ask them to pay. And if you sort of trace this out, you know, like, so let's say Comcast goes to Netflix and says, if you want to be in the fast lane, you have to pay us this amount. What if then California enacts a law that says you can't do that? So does that mean Netflix in California operates one way, but in other ways in other states? And so does that make the pricing structure different for different companies in different states? Well, then it becomes this question of whether it's worth it to the ISPs to pursue this kind of extra revenue stream. It could create a situation where you know a service such as Netflix is having to pass the cost of that fast lane access on to customers so that Netflix costs more in certain states than others, which I would expect would cause great outrage from consumers, um, at which point Netflix says, hey, it's not us, it's the ISPs. And so we just kind of continue the circular battle on and on. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we've, we've seen the last of this. Um, and I think it's, it's relatively good news that the internet as we knew it has not fallen apart. But I, I also don't in any way take this as an indication that the, the consequence of creating this policy is that there will be no effects for consumers. Let's move on to a story that we want to acknowledge, though we won't be going too deep into it, because it is such a huge story, but we also don't know what the impact is. And that's hashtag me too. And this was a story that, that Alex had put on the rundown last year and I made him take off. Um, because at, at that point, and I had to say with some skepticism, I, I wasn't sure that there was going to be really a significant outcome to the story. And to the degree that we try to focus on not just what's happened, but like what are the consequences for the media business, I think we're still uncertain, yes. um, yet a, a year and a few months out. Um, and we continue. this continues to be a story where very high-profile leaders in the media and entertainment industries continue to have allegations raised against them, um, and most notably in, in recent months, 
the, the fall of Les Moonves and the increased publicity about what has been a long-term, very toxic culture at CBS. Right. It's not just Les Moonves that had many allegations raised against him. There was Jeff Fager, the powerful, powerful producer of 60 Minutes who used to run the CBS News division, and Michael Weatherly, star of TV's Bull and NCIS, had a major story published against him from a, a name actress in Eliza Duke's show. Yes, and certainly the, the range of offenses indeed vary, and I think the idea or the recognition of, well, the cover-up um, from the top um, also indicates just how complicated these situations are, the nature of, of these cultures, and how difficult it is to change, and why so much of this persisted for so long. Right. Um, it's, it's all been and very clear now that um, many of the allegations about Moonves are, are, are becoming more public. That said, you know, I, I recall sort of the Variety uh, headline page um, once it was clear that Moonves was going to be gone, who will be the next head of CBS? And mm-hmm. lined up there... Which which man do you want to have this job? And so right. looking forward, I think my question is, and, and where I haven't seen anything that looks to me like, oh, things are going to change a lot, is that for the most part, we haven't seen women being promoted into these top positions. And, and that, I think, primarily leads to my skepticism about to what degree are these organizations going to change? To what degree are their board of directors changing? Yeah. Um, or are we going to continue to have mostly to all male boards of directors that continue to sweep this kind of behavior and, and cultural uh, norm under the rug. Yeah, there are some exceptions to that rule, like the major hiring of Jennifer Salky over at Amazon to replace Roy Price, but I agree with everything you said. It's really hard to come up with the consequences of this when we're in the middle of it, and we can only hope that the industry will change as a result of this. Yeah, I think the fact that it remains a story as opposed to that cyclical blip, right? And again, that's where a lot of my skepticism came from, sort of seeing these moments again and again. They're, they're big stories. We talk about them. Um, we can you know, talk about whether or not you know, attention to diversity on screen is you know, still a, a big story for the industry or whether you know, that the attention to it actually had major Im- implications. It's, it's hard to know in the, in the moment. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times when you have the news stories, they don't lead to much of anything. But back at it in 2019. Yeah, this will be a story that we have our eye on. Now, let's go industry by industry and talk about some of the big stories that have impacted each one, starting out with film and one of our favorite <laughs> news topics here at Media Business Matters, Movie Pass. Yeah, and that one, too, is a bit of an extension from last year. I I was perhaps too bullish on it. Um, I think you were too bullish on it. (laughs) I was more bearish than you. I continue to think the idea makes a lot of sense. Um, And I suspect when the the rubble clears in a few years, uh, we may look back on this as as the case often is when it, in, in terms of innovation, whether technology or in this case more of a, of a business practice, the way that entrenched interests kill a innovative idea. So yes, uh, Alex, do you want to say more about MoviePass? Yes. Well, I, we have on our rundown MoviePass crashing and burning. Now, that might not necessarily end up being the case at the end of the day. As we're recording this, MoviePass has announced a new fleet of plans that remove a lot of the problems that caused people to quit in the first place, but around July, MoviePass ran out of money. 
and shut down for a couple of days. And then you had MoviePass limit the amount of movies members could see to three a month, and then limiting the movies to a certain pool of movies that, for the most part, removed any wide releases and included a lot of movies that paid MoviePass that might not even be available to us in the Ann Arbor market. And we have a very... We have a very strong art house scene here that would get a lot of those smaller movies. Yeah, so I think here, too, we don't know what the end of the story is. I think MoviePass was bringing something to market that has potential, right? In the, to the degree that, yes, the um, rewards clubs that um, different film chains have produce some information about who goes to what movies and what they like. I think there were a lot of pieces of what MoviePass was going to be able to do in terms of promoting different movies to particular audiences and gathering data about what different specific people were going to see that could have been really valuable for the industry. And I actually think the industry knows it's valuable. It's just MoviePass was sort of coming in in the same way that Netflix did as an outsider that may, you know, when, when the, again, when the dust clears, we may see the major film chains offering something exactly like what MoviePass was doing, but they want to own it. We may see. It's already happening, Amanda. Yeah, have, I know. Yeah. We have AMC A-List, which costs 20 to $25 a month, gets you three movies a week, and I think there are some concessions discounts thrown in there, too. And that's been a big success for, AM, for AMC movie theaters with several hundred thousand subscribers subscribing within the first year. Right. No, it's it's a concept that certainly was ready. Um, there's an upside to the industry. I think the real issue with MoviePass was just the unwillingness of the industry to let a new player in. And the pricing scheme, which was just bound to lose money. Still in the news this year, um, in terms of the film industry, is the awkward and uncertain relationship uh, between the streaming services and what is a film that is created by a streaming service. Is it a film or is it not? Uh, and there has been much debate about that all year. The The latest chapter in this story probably was Netflix's uh, theatrical release of, of Roma, given that Netflix in the past has been slow to or refused to um, engage in theatrical release for its originals. They've only really released a movie for maybe a week or two for the sake of getting it qualified for awards because the Oscars still require a week or two long theatrical run in New York and L.A. But with Roma, they did something different. They bought out a lot of theaters for a few weeks. They put the movie in there. They gave it a decently wide release. I think it don't fact check me on this, but I think it's the biggest theatrical release a Netflix movie has ever gotten. And Roma is going to be a major player at these Academy Awards. And it seems to me to be a bit of a concession for Netflix that these theatrical releases matter, especially to people like awards voters. I think this is much to do about nothing, right? <laughs> it's just the awkward evolution of things and and a tendency to want to say film is a certain thing instead of acknowledging that there are different kinds of films, there are different directors with different desires, and different things matter. Mm -hmm. And films can be released initially in movie theaters and be enjoyed and appreciated, and films can be made available on streaming services and be enjoyed and appreciated, and it doesn't make it any less of a film. But nevertheless, this continues to be an ongoing debate. We talked about this in an earlier episode, but there's also Netflix essentially picking from, for lack of a better term, the scrap heap of major studios. So we have the release of The Cloverfield Paradox back in February and the release of Mowgli 
this month, which Mowgli fell into production problems, and then they didn't get it out before Disney released their Jungle Book, so now Warner Brothers was saddled with this second Jungle Book movie that was very different and much darker. Yeah, I mean, I think as we have in other industries, the more experience we have with digital distribution, the more we come to understand the contours of the industry, the, the things that are competing, and the things that are complementary. And I, I've just been looking at some data. Um, there's a lot of attention, actually, to what a great year this has been in terms of box office. Yes. Um, and, and so I was looking at the, the long-term numbers. And when we look at uh, the impact of digital disruption on media industries, we usually see like these big cliffs um, in terms of massive effects. And if you look at box office, actually going all the way back to the introduction of, of VHS, box office has remained remarkably steady. Not mm-hmm. exactly the same every year. Um, and yes, ticket prices have changed. But it's not a story of clear trends. Um, and I think what that tells me is that people like movies. Sometimes they like to go to movies. Sometimes they like to watch them in their homes. Um, and that's overall great news for the film industry. And I think sort of this idea that there is one size fits all, that every movie must go through, um, is slowly starting to wane. Especially when it comes to rom-coms, because Netflix has kind of found its little niche for itself with with the release of movies like The Kissing Booth and Set It Up and To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Right, if we are to believe Netflix numbers, um, um, are titles that have done very well for them this year. Although we don't really know that, and we will never know that. We will not, but, you know, anecdotally, I will say, among the 18 to 22-year-olds that I uh, spend some time with, there, there certainly has been talk of these films. And I think that's a good example, and it in many ways speaks back to what has been an ongoing concern in the film industry, which is that the current competitive conditions have largely made it impossible to make what are called mid-range films. And what are romantic comedies? Mid-range films. films. And it's not that you don't want to go to a theater to see them, um, but maybe you do want to uh, watch them on your couch. And they don't require uh, the bazillions of dollars um, that in some cases is necessary to launch a big theatrical display. Again, the idea that there may just be a repartitioning of sectors of industry and you know what we need to do is not try to create hierarchies among them um, but really be thankful that there's different ways for financing and distributing different kinds of movies so that we can have them all and you brought up box office i want to bring up a couple of small tiny things and just mention them related to the box office the first thing is the success of black panther and crazy rich asians non-white-led movies that did extraordinarily well at the box office, in the case of Black Panther, doing better than a movie called Avengers Infinity War that also released this year. It's been a big year. And again, those have certainly been uh, headlining stories for the year. I think, as always, our question has to be, though, does it change anything? So uh, whether or not this was the the moment that was needed to actually change practices and uh, stop having these films that are perceived as exceptions. Uh, we will have to wait to, to see the slate. It may not even be 2019 yeah. because it does take a while for things to move through development, but maybe by 2020, these are not the exceptions. Right. And of course, in 2019, Disney looks to also remain at the top of the box office. Coming up in 2019, they have Dumbo. They have live action, quote unquote, Lion King, they have Avengers Endgame, they have a new movie in this little franchise called Star Wars. Disney is going to be the dominant player in 2019. 
Oh, I, I, I don't think that's a, a prediction that's all that uh, controversial. No. So let's move into our bread and butter TV, starting with FX's great, I love that FX does this, the annual peak TV study that showed that there were 495 scripted series airing this year. I barely made a dent in it, Amanda. Oh, I, I would actually say my viewing was down this year, so um, whatever the opposite of peak TV is, that's my story. <laughs> and I think the, the takeaway that was getting a lot of headlines had to do with the fact that there were fewer fewer series made for basic cable uh, than there had been the year before, therefore suggesting to some decline, and that this was the year that streaming services overtook basic cable in number of series being produced. And within that cable story are networks leaving the game. So Lifetime, kind of for the most part getting out of scripted shows, dumping the fourth season of Unreal on Hulu, and TV Land also getting out of the game, younger One of the last remaining shows for TV Land is going to be airing on Viacom's Paramount Network. So we have cable networks that are essentially giving up on making original series. This is just a maturation of the business, I would argue. And uh, if you want to see the story uh, leading up to 2018, I suggest uh, taking a look at a little book called We Now Disrupt This Broadcast. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh. Subtle plug, Amanda. No, and, and in the book there, I, I trace... I mean, the practice of original cable series is relatively short-lived, um, really something that started just in the late 1990s. And we had many channels producing shows that probably shouldn't have been. And Lifetime has a, has a longer history than most, but Lifetime was never really successful in establishing uh, a foothold or really getting any attention for doing um, much that was notable except for its very early history. Uh, TV Land, why is TV Land making originals? Ask, hot, answer yeah, me that to start with. Hot in Cleveland was a hit, but when Hot in Cleveland went away, they didn't really replace it with much. Younger has found some success, and that's a show that... That's a show that Viacom is going to be continuing, but yeah, no, TV Land really didn't leave a mark in the same way that something like Comedy Central did. This is part of the broader shift in the business. It makes sense. People prefer the convenience of streaming services and being able to watch when and where they want. Uh, This ties into the fact that uh, this year... There, although we have been talking about cord cutting for some time now, uh, the numbers became a little more notable. I haven't seen the fourth quarter figures yet, but in the third quarter, there were a million lost subscribers. And so while we've talked about this for a long time, the numbers themselves have been kind of unimpressive until 2018. A lot of these cable channels now are starting to feel their subscriber base contract Uh, which means that they aren't getting that revenue from subscribers, which means that they're able to sell their advertising for less money, there we go, um, because they're only available in, in fewer homes. And, and, and that all makes sense. You know, creating original series, you've got to do it well to break through and, and make a dent in, in this very competitive marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, the overall number of shows still going up. And it will probably still go up as long as streaming keeps expanding. I, I'm not sure the logistics on their methodology. We have to be careful how we're counting Netflix. The cable shows, the broadcast shows, those are made just for the American market, whereas Netflix is an international service, and a lot of what they are making probably is being counted, but shouldn't be perceived as primarily for the U.S. audience. And so there's a, there's a bit of apples and oranges that's starting mm-hmm. to happen um, as a result of that. I mean, if you want to count 
how many broadcast shows are produced around the globe, then, you know, things start to look a little different. And one other takeaway from this study, broadcast ain't going anywhere. They're rather steady, although there is an important thing to note, which is new Fox and how Fox will very likely be cutting down on their scripted output over the next few years. Yeah, I think we're starting to see the beginning of the new trend. And and part of that story about broadcast not going anywhere was NBC's supremacy as the most watched broadcast channel for, it's been some decades since they've had that title. And if you look at the shows that uh, were supporting that, that victory, Almost all of them are reality, competition, or sports. Football, football, football. The Voice. The Olympics. Yeah. What I think New Fox is is going to give us an illustration of is the strategy for broadcasters going forward. And I don't think it should be perceived as, you know, they're too weak or anything. This is the reconfiguration of the competitive field in response to a new distribution technology that does certain things well. What does Netflix do really well? It lets you watch the thing when you want, um, in the order that you want. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll see a show at a certain time, and its business model isn't based on that. Broadcast still delivers for live viewing. It's, so it will be interesting, I think, to see, to not so much focus on, oh my the broadcast networks aren't making scripted shows, but what kind of innovation can we find in this strategy of creating programs that people want to watch live? Now, of course, when you're talking about TV, you got to talk about portals, and you got to talk about the behemoth in the room, Netflix. And one of the stories that we noticed in 2018 was how they're really starting to take cancellations seriously. Major, or I, I don't know, it's hard to define a major Netflix show, but <laughs> shows that were major to me, like American Vandal and Everything Sucks, as well as the Marvel properties. Daredevil's gone, Luke Cage is gone, Iron Fist is gone, Jessica Jones probably is going to follow it out the door, too. Right, so there's, I think there's different things going on there. I, I think the first thing is it's just part, again, of the maturation of the fact that Netflix now has some things on its shelf, and so it doesn't have to keep everything running. In some cases, I think we can look at shows are not made are not meant to run forever. Right. It was the business model that fed that, and I think actually as an American Vandal fan, you should be happy that your show is ending before it becomes bad. Before it becomes poopy? As you might say. Uh, if you might. The idea that that sometimes you're going to take a swing and you're just not going to see the attention that you know the service wanted to. We have reason to believe, even though they won't share it, um, that, that Netflix is making these decisions based on data. Uh, the Marvel cancellations, I think, is a slightly different story. Matt Ball had a great analysis um, of this in a, in a, a, in a tweet storm. Yeah, yeah, always. And so, you know, part of this has to do with what's happening with Disney more broadly. Some of this has to do with, I know it's hard for Marvel fans, but that that maybe these shows just were not all that popular on that service. They're also incredibly expensive. I want to resist so hard about making viewership assumptions because there is some data that we've seen that shows that Daredevil was a decently watched show at Netflix. 
But when it came down to the cost versus the benefit of it, it seemed like it didn't. It came up short, and there was also haggling between Disney and Netflix over budgeting, over episode costs, over everything like that. Yeah, and I it really seemed like the sides weren't getting along as well as when they first made this deal back in 2014. Yeah, and I think Ball's analysis was something like the the Marvel shows are roughly 30 percent more expensive to produce, and yeah. and when you think about that, this is not a. a a big margin business, I think, when you're looking at, you're comparing how many people are watching things and recognizing that, that that's a pretty big premium to be paying for that content. Again, when you know that dis- that there's this broader strategy happening with what Disney's doing with its properties. And what Disney is doing with its properties is it's putting up some portals. We've got Disney Plus coming next fall. That's going to have a Star Wars show. That's going to have a High School Musical show. That's going to have Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars. All that content in one place. We'll see how that works. And then we don't quite know what's going to happen with Hulu. My general assumption is that the FX stuff and some of the other things in the Fox library that might be more adult might end up there or something a lot like it. It's really hard to tell right now. Yeah, I I think all we can say for sure is that things will change at Hulu. Yes. And Apple. What the heck is going on there? We... We know they're picking up a whole bunch of shows. They're signing some overall deals. When are we going to see it? Question mark. I, I'm going to take the controversial position that we just need to stop worrying about Apple. I am unconvinced that this is ever going to be the story we thought it would be. And for a good decade now, there's been the just breathless speculation that Apple would disrupt the TV business. And I'm unconvinced that any of these deals are, any of these shows on their own or even added up together will disrupt, adjust, you know, like radically change the marketplace as it exists. I think you're right, but I think Apple is going to become a player in the game the same way that Amazon and Hulu are players in the game. They're not going to be a behemoth like Netflix, but they're not trying to be. And I think that then belies my position that I'm not convinced that Hulu and Amazon are really players in the game. (laughs) I guess you're right. Amazon is different. And Amazon had had a big year too. Jennifer Salke coming in. And we kind of won't really see a lot of the impacts of her tenure until next year, year after, as she kind of starts developing more shows on her own. Right. And again, I think we still don't know really what the metric is, right? Because whatever Amazon is doing with its video services is, is, is about servicing the, the overall business, uh, which is it's about retail and about maintaining prime memberships. Um, I think the, the more interesting story we don't talk a lot about is uh, the business of Amazon channels uh, and how significant that marketplace has been for growing adoption of the different portals that people buy there. And, you know, recognizing this is kind of a new gatekeeper function that is emerging um, in this environment that we thought was going to be free of gatekeepers. Um, so an Amazon, you know, taking in a bit of revenue there as well for being that, that middleman service. So at, on, a, on a media business matters level, I think actually Amazon channels is probably the more interesting story, um, even though uh, the service overall had a big Emmy win this year. And the marvelous Mrs. Maisel truly is marvelous. And we are taking a look at the clock and we are realizing that we are talking a lot. So we this episode is going to be two parts. You will be hearing from us soon with the second part of our year in review. 
That's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about the show, you can go to amandalox.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. Our entire archive is also on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon with part two of our year in review.